We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, please turn there. We've all heard the phrase, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. I think each of us know uh, the truthfulness of that statement, probably in a myriad of ways in our lives. I think we also know this, especially in our Christian lives. Um, Oftentimes what begins with excitement, significance, and importance over time, the more we get familiar with it, it can become normal, mundane, and maybe even disregarded a bit in its significance. This assumption, uh, which I find lodged in the recesses of my heart, is really what's behind our teaching series this Christmas season. I want to recapture my wonder of the Christmas story. And hopefully, maybe some of you, maybe in the same place, can bring you along as well this Christmas season. For the Christmas story to ever become mundane and normal, and not move us as God's people, should be unthinkable. But I think if we're honest, it's probably not the case. The Christmas season, this Christmas season, the reality of God entering our world to become our Savior should elevate our affections and drive us to wonder as the people of God. And I'm beginning this way because, as you've already turned there, we're going to consider a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's a a passage in the Bible we read every year during Christmas. It's a passage of Scripture you'll probably hear from your television by way of Charlie Brown's Christmas over the next few weeks. It's a passage that we are very, very familiar with in one sense, and therefore it's a passage which I think we can can easily become mundane, and it's a passage of Scripture which can become seasonal for us. If I want to be honest with you this morning... I experienced that this week. Like, this passage has been one of the hardest I have prepared for in a while. And not because of interpretive challenges in the text and difficulty to understand his meaning, but because I'm familiar with it. Kind of, sort of. The danger this morning, I think the danger of the Christmas season is to read this text and other texts, but especially one like this, to study it, to preach it, to hear a sermon on it, as if we are outside of it. As if it's just a sermon for someone else. As if it's a verse for Christmas cards and celebration during the month of December. But really, nothing could be further from the truth. Right? This text actually ruptures human history. Like our dating system in the West, whether people want to accept that or not, actually centers on this event. The fountain of Christian faith pours forth from this text. And the glory of the only God, the the one Creator, the, the Sovereign Lord, burst on the scene. Of human history. To change everything. As a result of the birth of this child. So if you're taking notes this morning. uh, Here's an overarching statement. That hopefully we can kind of unpack throughout. I want to think about the the glory of the Christmas story. So this morning the, the glory of the Christmas story. Is found in the saving purpose of God. But it's wrapped in the humble simplicity of His Son in the Gospel. The glory of the Christmas story is found in the saving purpose of God. It's wrapped up. It's a gift. It comes to us in the humble simplicity of God's Son in the Gospel. 
Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read down from chapter from verse 1 down to verse 20. If you'd follow along with me this morning and try to do so with maybe fresh ears and fresh eyes this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from there, when the angels went away from there into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told them. Father, as we now pause before we really dive into your, to your word this morning. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us see this morning. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to obey. Lord, let us run with haste. Let us leave praising and glorifying God. Let us stand with awe and fear. Let us stand with wonder. All what we see as responses in this text. Lord, we ask you would do that by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. My goal this morning is straightforward. I want to provide, I think, three ways to help us move beyond the mundane. To recapture a sense of wonder in the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And here's the first thing. I think we need to first embrace the simplicity of the Savior's arrival. The opening words of the Bible read, In the beginning. Not once upon a time. The Scriptures come to us not as myth, but as a record of divine activity in historical time, which is exactly what we are confronted with in verse 1. The story of Jesus' arrival begins, In those days. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this parallels the beginning of chapter 1 verse 5 where we read, It happened in the days of Herod, king of Judah. The arrival of the Son of God in human history took place on a real day. In a real city. And under the rule of a real Roman ruler. Caesar Augustus was the first and many believe the greatest Roman emperor. He replaced the republic with an imperial form of government and expanded the empire to include the entire Mediterranean world. He brought about the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and he received the title Augustus 
meaning exalted one by a vote of the Senate, 27 B.C. It's this Caesar Augustus who calls this census in verse 1. For military and tax purposes, Rome would often call for everyone under their authority to be registered. Two such registrations were required by Augustus while Quirinius was governor of Syria. One we find in our text here. And while Jews were exempt from military service, they were not exempt from taxation. So as verse 3 states, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Luke, the physician in the great evidence um, gatherer, as we read from Luke chapter 1, 1, lays all these details here for us. Now, own town, own town here refers to one's town of ancestral origin. And Jesus and Mary, uh, Joseph and Mary are really Hometown sweethearts, we could say, from Bethlehem, the birthplace of King David. And notice Luke points out Joseph's Davidic lineage in verse 3. It says he was of the house and lineage of David. I think we read last week, we know from Second Samuel 7 how God promised to send David as an everlasting, to send David an everlasting heir who would rule over the nations and sit upon the throne forever. Luke points out how Joseph was in fact from the line of David. He's from the line of David. He was from the hometown of Bethlehem. Now the route from Nazareth to Bethlehem was about 75 to 90 mile ascent. About 1,800 feet above sea level. This was no small task for anyone. Especially someone traveling with a pregnant wife. or Especially for a pregnant woman, we should say. The fact that Mary joined Joseph here does raise some questions, though. Typically, women weren't required to register. Why did Mary go? Perhaps she simply desired to be with her husband. Maybe it was to avoid some of the scandals surrounding her pregnancy, which separation from Joseph might instigate. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. We're really left to speculate Mary's reasoning for going. But we're not left to speculate Luke's reasoning here. Luke, the gospel writer, portrays with precision the reasoning for Mary coming along. Mary joined Joseph because God ordained it. The sovereign hand of God is at work intervening in human history here. To bring about the arrival of his son. So, yes, uh, the exalted Caesar Augustus made his authoritative decree, no doubt. But his decree went forth under the sovereign plan and purposes of God. You see, hundreds of years before, as as I read to open up our service, the prophet Micah had said, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem had been chosen to be the birthplace of the Savior's arrival. So at this time, in this city, under the rule of the great Caesar Augustus, God uses His decree to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem when the time is just right. For her to give birth to the Son of God into the world. God is the one orchestrating these events. To rupture human history with the arrival of the Savior. You never, ever, ever have to wonder if God is awake and on His throne. He is, I promise. But notice how He really does this. Notice how this arrival comes about. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I find the simplicity of these two verses really breathtaking. If you were 
reading this for the first time, you might easily skim right over these two verses. Ever since the the Garden of Eden, the Bible has been awaiting this moment. God's people have been awaiting the arrival of one who would come to crush the head of the enemy. Awaiting the arrival of God's Son who would sit on the throne of David forever. Awaiting the arrival of the Son of the Most High God. The one deemed wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here He is. And yet His birth is given just two short, succinct verses stated in the simplest fashion. The simplicity here of the Son of God's arrival into the world is really staggering. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, the text says, which, side note, doesn't necessarily mean she had other children, but I think most naturally does. And after giving birth to the Lord Jesus, the text says she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. This involves strips of of cloth used to keep the, the baby warm from injuring themselves. And then we read at the end of verse 7 that Mary laid Jesus in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And she did this because there was no room for them in the end. We need to stop to consider the simplicity of this story this morning. I know we're familiar with the details. But I want us to try to consider them with fresh eyes this morning. Because it is rather a peculiar an ironic scene, to be honest. The Son of God bursts forth on the scene of human history completely unnoticed. No triumphal party. He lies in a feeding trough with animals. No royal robes to be wrapped in. Strips of cloth. The obscurity here is undeniable. The simplicity here is shocking. And the humility here is God glorifying. Look, it all points to the peculiar glory of God in the gospel. God became man in the person of his son. And the simplicity of the Savior's arrival speaks to the humility of his life and death for sinners. The Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus' humility in Philippians 2 this way. He says, Speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God's divine son, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? Not his divinity, but of his divine right. And he took upon humanity by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let me ask you this morning. Do you see the the manner and the extent to which God has pursued you in His Son? Pursued you. You know who you are. You know your sin. You know your struggles. You know the rebellion of your heart. But do you see the manner and the extent to which God has pursued us? That's what this scene depicts. The King of glory, the sovereign creator of the world, sent his son to leave heaven to enter our fallen and broken world. A world we messed up with our sin. But He didn't just enter our world. He entered our world a specific way. He took upon the weakness and frailty of our humanity by being born as not just a man, but a baby in Bethlehem. But He wasn't just born as a baby in Bethlehem. He grew up to live an obedient life. Experiencing all the brokenness we know All of the issues you struggle with, all of the wrestlings that you have, those aren't foreign to the Lord Jesus. He became man. But He did all of that without sinning. But He didn't just live an obedient life. 
He died a death that we deserved. But not just any death. He died a criminal's death. A shameful death on a Roman cross. Why? In the pursuit of the people of God. In the pursuit of the salvation of His people. In the pursuit of sinners like you and me. I just want us to consider this Christmas season. The manner and the extent to which God has pursued us. If you're not a believer this morning, have you considered the depth to which this God has pursued you? I know what it's like to not know Christ and be in my sin. And to think and feel and have a posture towards God as if He is a, a, an angry Father in the heavens wanting to smack you down. And while He is holy and just and righteous and He hates your sin. Do you see who He is in the person of Christ? That in His love and in His grace, He has pursued you. Who else has pursued you like that? Have you embraced the simplicity of the Savior's arrival for you this morning, this Christmas season? Do you see it and do you see what it's about? That is for you. He came for you. You embraced that this morning. But Christians, again, have, have we considered the simplicity of this scene? Have we taken in afresh the manner and the depth to which God has pursued us in our sin? The grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is Breathtaking. That He would go to the extent and the depth that He would to rescue us from our sin. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the manger represents. He would come down, 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 and down for you and I. Secondly, this morning, We need to embrace the it's bad when a preacher forgets his points. Embrace the simplicity of the Savior's arrival. Secondly, we need to experience the glory of the Savior's gift. We see that in verses eight through twelve. Luke now moves really from the arrival of Jesus to the explanation of his arrival through this announcement. God has provided us a gift we are to experience. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field watching over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now I know we have cute manger scenes. We have Christmas decorations with shepherds. They seem to be the most trustworthy Coolest dudes around. But honestly, there was nothing cute and admirable about them. Shepherds held poor standing and poor reputations in the community. Their testimony was not even valid in court. These guys were nobodies. They lived with animals. They were lowly, unimportant, and ignored by the world, but not by God. Look, I I don't know where anyone's at in this room this morning, but if you think that the Christian faith is made up, whoever tried to make it up was stupid. You do not use shepherds to tell a story. And what else you don't do? Shepherd's testimony wasn't permissible in court. Neither was a woman. And who was the first person the angel would speak to at the entrance of the tomb when the Lord Jesus had rose from the grave. It hinges on her words, right? The story of the Bible is God's divine revelation to us. 
Verse 11, 10, 11, the shepherds are told to exchange. But even before that, the, think about it. It's these shepherds, these unimportant, untrusted, lowly dudes. It's these shepherds who God ordained to be the first to hear the Savior's birth and the gift of God's salvation that he brings. In verse 11, the shepherds are told to exchange their great fear for great joy. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God did not send a military leader. God did not send a judge. God did not send a politician. God did not send an educator or doctor. God sent us what we most need. The good news for all people is that God sent us a Savior. And listen to me. I know you have a lot of needs. I know you're like me. I know you lay on the pillow and think about all the needs and things that you need in your life. God loves you enough to not to just give you those things. He gives you what you most need. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. We need a rescuer. That's everyone in this room. That's the love of God. The good news for all people is that God sent a Savior. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Again, the historical reference here is undeniable, right? This day, this city, the city of David. God has sent us a rescue. He has sent His Son to save us from our sins. God has come to save us, to heal us, to redeem us, to rescue us from our sin. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this saying is trustworthy. What is it, Paul? And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Maybe this Christmas season, our lack of wonder stems from our weak view of our sin towards our Savior. I you consider this morning if your heart aligns with Paul's in terms of your sin. And remember, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. Can you honestly... Say as Paul did that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is an interesting statement, right? The Apostle Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. How should we understand this statement? Common sense tells us this is not a scientific statement. In the sense Paul hadn't investigated the sinful habits of all people all around the world, carefully compared himself and come to the conclusion he was the worst of them all. So what is Paul doing here? Paul was so truly convicted by the Holy Spirit that it resulted in the throwing off of all manner of comparison. When we are truly convicted by the Holy Spirit to see our sin, the immediate result is that we, we, we drop all sense of comparison to others. It's our sin before a righteous, holy and righteous God. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sin and the depth and the magnitude of it before a holy and righteous God, he could not conceive that anyone could be worse. This is the, the language, I think, of every sinner whose conscience is stirred by the Holy Spirit. So I, I want to ask this Christmas season, for all of us in the room, do we struggle with comparison? It's a dangerous one in the Christian walk. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not as bad as them. I know, I might not say this, but I'm a little more righteous or mature or more fit than them. 
I deserve that. Is comparison something you struggle with? Let's be honest, we all struggle with this. And if that's the case, you're seeing, you're not seeing your sin as the apostle sees his sin. And therefore, you will not see and experience the, the glory of the Savior's gift this Christmas season. We must not be like the Pharisee who prayed from a heart of comparison, right? God, thank you that I am not like them. We must be like the tax collector and the Apostle Paul who prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Experience the, the, the glory of the Savior's gift this Christmas season demands us rightly seeing the depth of our sin before a holy God. Jesus is our Savior. Therefore, we are sinners. His role as Savior is grounded in His title here, He says, right? He is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the Christ, the Anointed One. He is the the culmination of the Old Testament promises. He's the, the realization of the Old Testament's hope. He's the Lord. He's a divine Savior. And listen, while the, the full, here's something to, uh, to see in our text, which is really, really important. While the full realization of these titles, Lord and Christ, would await the resurrection, they are a reality even at the birth of this child. That's important. Many false teachings of Jesus assign Him as just a man like me and you. Yeah, He might have been full of the Spirit, He might have been baptized by the Spirit while he was on earth, but he doesn't become Lord and Christ until his resurrection. That is not what the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus. The baby that Mary held and coddled was the Savior, the Christ and the Lord at that moment. And we are to experience this gift. We do that in two ways. Look at verse. To be honest with you, I you you make a lot of mistakes as preachers when you pick a text, especially when you have to pick it early in the week and they have to kind of order the service around it because then you're stuck with it. You can't change it, right? I would just preach this 13 and 14 if I was to do it over again. But hey, here we are. Gift of salvation, we experience it in two distinct ways. I think we find here in verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Glory to God, peace to man. That's the Christmas story. Captivating glory. Comforting peace is the song from heaven. That'd make a good sermon, wouldn't it? I should go back and do it. No, really. Heaven produces praise while man is promised peace. This is what Christmas is about. This is God's gift to us. We are to experience God's captivating glory and His comforting peace in Christ. Before anything else, the birth of this child is the manifestation of the glory of God. It is for the praise, the worship, and the adoration of God. It ascribes Him worth and value. The incarnation, the supernatural reality that God would become man in the birth of this child is the greatest revelation of the glory of God, the Bible teaches us. Even more than creation itself, even amongst the throne room of heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the birth of Jesus, the the glory of God burst forth on the scene in human history. 
God is glorified. He is exalted. His worth is magnified because this child is born. He would live a life and die a death which would validate and vindicate these words from heaven. I read from you earlier 6 through 8 in Philippians chapter 2. But after we talked about him leaving heaven, becoming a man, becoming a servant, dying a death on the cross, there's a therefore and a conclusion to that verse. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The birth of the Lord Jesus was the explosion of God's glory. The life of the Lord Jesus was the full revelation of God's glory. And the death of the Lord Jesus and His resurrection was the apex of God's glory. What are you captivated by this Christmas season? What are you captivated by this morning? What pulls your heart? What takes your attention? Is it the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Or is it your... Are you captivated by your difficulties? Are you captivated by the busyness and demands of your life? Are you captivated by yourself? Your wants, desires, and needs. Are you captivated as we so often are by the opinions and thoughts of others about you? Are you captivated by the glory of this Savior? And we're to experience God's gift of salvation in His captivating glory. But His glory is wrapped also in His comforting peace. Peace has come down to us. Peace is embodied for us in Christ. Isaiah 9, I preached a couple weeks ago, we read that this child would be the Prince of Peace. A beautiful way of stating it. But notice this peace is qualified. I, I used to, honestly as a kid, I would Christmas time would come around and we would sing Christmas songs where it would say, you know, Peace on earth, goodwill to man. And I was confused and really skeptical. Because I, I didn't see peace in the world. Oftentimes I didn't see peace in my family. I didn't see peace. So, yeah, I mean, why are, does anybody not pay attention to the song we're singing? What kind of be my thought? What, what's going on? Like he came and brought peace, but what peace? I don't see it. It's qualified here. End of verse 14 tells us, On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, my ESV says, or on whom his favor rests, the NIV puts it. The NASB has, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The point is this, the point being that although God's offer of peace goes out to all, only his people who accept him as Lord and Savior are able to experience his peace he brings. It's a peace, first and foremost, between God and man. It's a peace Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, no, apart from Christ, due to our sin, we are not just disobedient. We've not just made bad decisions. Apart from Christ, due to our sin, we are hostile to God. We are in fact rebels and enemies towards Him, the Bible says. 
Apart from Christ, there is no peace between God and man. But in Christ, through His saving work on the cross, we're made right. We're justified. We can stand before Him not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. His perfect righteousness that He lived and earned from us while He lived on this earth. And we can find true peace with God. Then and only then can this peace with God spill over into peace with others. And one day, we will fully and finally live under the rule of King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, when the increase of His government and of peace, there shall be no end. One pastor, I think, put it really well. He said this. These are the great purposes for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Glory ever ascending from man to God. Pray uh, peace ever descending from God to man. Again, it's a question again this morning. Are you experiencing the comforting peace of God through His gift of salvation this Christmas season? What is in your soul between you and God? Is it a, is it a wrestle? Is it a yearning? Or is it a peace? Not because you've got it all figured out. But because you have accepted the Lord Jesus who has figured it out and accomplished it for you. And you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's available to everyone in this room this morning. As it says, it's made available to those who are, he finds, pleased in him. Are you experiencing the comforting peace of God this, through this gift of salvation this Christmas season? I guess as we talk about, and do you see the glory of the Savior's gift this Christmas season? Which we have to see our sin rightly. To see the gift accurately. So are you experiencing the captivating glory and comforting peace this Christmas season? So thirdly, we need to respond to this story, the Savior's story. Verses 15 to 21. After, after reading this great announcement from heaven, it's easy to see the, the rest of the section as really just an add-on. It's just, you know, detail. It's good, but it's, you know, it's cool. But that, that's a great mistake we would make. Because I, I think we find here differing or varying responses to this story which invite us in. They force us to join in. Ask us how we're going to respond to this story. Okay, again, the danger behind our familiarity with this text is we, we tend to see ourselves outside of it. It's a seasonal Christmas story. It's great. I get it. It makes, has implications for my life, but we just read through it. But these final verses invite us in. They force us to respond rightly to the story. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. First we see in verse 17 that the shepherds responded by spreading this story. In both their actions and their attitude, they could not be silent. They acted by making known the saying that had been told them. They had to go. 
They were compelled to go with haste, the text says. They acted by making known the saying that had been told them, the text says. It's a, it's a natural response. It was the natural response of these shepherds in light of the glory they had experienced. Experiencing the glory of God's story compelled them to spread the news of this story. And when we see how good and glorious God is in the gospel, we should naturally want others to know about it. The right and proper response to experiencing the glory of Christ is to go and tell someone else about it. We do this with everything else in our lives that we find great. We experience something great. We're compelled to share it, to retweet it, to Instagram it, to Facebook it, to gather people around to look at it. We share it. We desire others to experience what we have. In fact, our enjoyment of the thing itself is only intensified by sharing it. Is that our response to the glory of this story this Christmas season? Now, I know I don't want to make a simplistic statement at you. I know there are a myriad of real issues we have to consider when we talk about sharing our faith. And I don't want to diminish any of those. There are real fears, real barriers and real difficulties. I know that. I have those in my heart, in my life. So I'm not trying to say something overly simplistic here. But at the same time, I want to call us to consider for a moment how our lack of sharing Jesus just might say something about our lack of wonder and the glory of who He is and our enjoyment of Him and our wonder at His person. It might say something about the smallness of our thoughts of God's glory in the gospel. It often says in my heart that the fear of man is bigger than the glory of God. It might just say that the difficulties that might come from me sharing my faith in this moment are greater than the manifested glory of the Son of God in Christ. Begin small, right? Begin by praying. Begin by simply sharing. Take small steps. It's a good time of the year. You're writing Christmas cards. Follow up with a phone call. Write a simple gospel presentation in there. Tell tell them what God has done in your heart, what God's doing. If it's someone local in our neighborhood, we have flyers out there promoting our sermon series and our candlelight dinner, take our candlelight service. Take them with you. Pass them out. Share. Be like the shepherds. Invite someone to your dinner table with your family who needs to know this story. So we respond first by spreading the story. Then in verse 18, there's also says, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And here's our word, right? It can be translated amazed. They were left in awe. They were astonished. When was the last time the gospel absolutely paralyzed you? When was the last time the gospel moved you to tears? When was the last time you were confronted with the Lord Jesus in the Bible and it brought, it paralyzed you? You saw the love of Christ towards you in the gospel and were overcome with amazement and wonder. Jesus came to satisfy your wonder. Jesus came to fulfill your awe. 
We have to fight this Christmas season against our tendency to be amazed and wondered by far too less things. We must respond in wonder to the Savior. But then there's a third response here. It's a beautiful response. And you know, I, I, I spoke a little bit last week on the tradition surrounding Mary that comes out of our church tradition. And honestly, we don't know much about Mary at all in the Bible. You'll be hard-pressed to find details of Mary in the Bible at all. But we hear this one multiple times. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What a beautiful response. What a faith-filled response. What a strong woman Mary was. The word translated treasure, it means to protect. It means to defend. Mary prized this good news. Mary protected it. And she protected it by pondering it in her heart. This is the idea of thinking deeply. To consider in depth the meaning of the story. Mary treasured and protected this truth by reflecting deeply upon it. Mary slowed down to deeply consider it. This may be the application we all need. Not just this Christmas season, but I know I do. We need to slow down. We need to take time to treasure and ponder the truths of the gospel. If we want to recapture our wonder, we must reclaim our time and slow down. We live in a world of, of soundbite information. We have multiple apps going at all time. Right? You ever move all your apps? How you do that? You get them all off your screen. It goes on for like 20 minutes, right? We have multiple windows on our browser. Brow windows within windows. You got Safari, Firefox, and Chrome going on. You didn't know it until you shut your computer down and it starts to tell you it can't shut down because this is still going, right? You didn't know that. We have endless pop-up ads, continuous checklists to consider, and a myriad of distractions all the time. If we're to recapture our wonder this season, we must be intentional with our time. We must protect the story of the gospel. We must defend the story of the gospel by pondering the Savior in His Word. There's no other way. If you're not spending time contemplating the Lord through His Word, your affections for Christ will not grow. This is how He's revealed Himself to us. He's given us the beauty of His person and the glory of Jesus Christ revealed to us in His Word. We have endless riches at our disposal. But do we take the time to sit and ponder and treasure the Lord? It's convicting for me to say. So how do we recapture our wonder? We embrace the simplicity of the Savior's arrival. If you're not here, if you're not a believer this morning, the simplicity of the Savior's arrival, the humility of the Savior's arrival demands the humility of your response. It demands repentance. It remains a, really a rejection of your sin and you trying to earn your place before God. A confession that you are a sinner and you can't save yourself. And a confession that Christ is the Savior and I need you to save me. It's repentance and faith.
It's a humbling process. Sit before the Lord and admit, I'm not the Lord you are. Save me of my sin. We must embrace the simplicity of the Savior's arrival. We must experience the glory of the Savior's gift. And we must respond to the Savior's story by telling, by wondering, by treasuring and pondering the Savior in His Word. The glory of the Christmas story is found in the saving purposes of God wrapped in the humble simplicity of His Son in the Gospel. We're going to close in just a minute. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And I want you to consider the words in which we're calling you to confess with your lips. Consider who Christ is. The wondrous mystery that He is. That He came. That He lived. That He died on our behalf. And I want you to ask the Lord this morning, in light of who, what you've done, in light of who you are, in light of what we're singing, how do you want me to respond to you today? Be faithful and patient enough and honest enough to respond as the Lord's leading you. You want to accept Christ this morning? I'm here up front after service. Come. We'll open the Word of God. Maybe this Christmas the Lord can awaken your heart to the true wonder of Christmas. If you need to just pray, I'll pray with you. Come. Respond how the Lord calls you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I I come to this moment every time and know there's more to say and I want to say more and I want to announce who you are more and louder and deeper in different ways. Lord, I I am confident today that what comes out of my lips pales into comparison to what you've put in your word and what you can reveal to the hearts of your people by the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we, we trust you this morning. We thank you this morning for who you are. Lord, we want to embrace the simplicity of the story. Lord, make us humble. Lord, reveal to us where we're prideful. Humble us, Lord, so that our life might be a demonstration of the Christmas story. Humble me as a pastor. Proclamation of my lips would equate to the way I walk with my steps. Lord, help us to experience the gift of your salvation. Lord, help us to understand the glory that we get to take part in and the comforting peace that you provide to us in Christ, Lord. Lord, help us not to be lured away to believe that peace is going to happen any other way than what you've provided for in your Son. Help us to cling to that this morning. Lord, help us as your people to respond rightly. Lord, let us gaze upon the glory of what you've done in Christ. And Lord, let let it move us in both action and in attitude to tell someone praise you, to glorify you. We have to tell this. Lord, let us wonder this week. Help us to see the smallness of ourselves and the bigness of who you are. And Lord, finally, let us, let us be like Mary. Lord, we want to treasure We want to treasure the treasure. We want to protect. We want to defend the gospel. But we want to do that by taking time to ponder who you are. Think deeply about what you've done and who it makes us. Think deeply about what awaits us as your people. But as we sing this last song, Lord, Reveal to our hearts how you want us to respond. Help us to respond rightly. We are a grateful people, a joyful people.
good news of great joy has come to all people. Oh, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.